All right, if you take your Bibles, go to Romans 15. Big thanks to the sound guys today. Flawlessly navigated through 432 slides in perfect synchronization, so that was great. It's a big task. There's a lot. We're still working out kinks, but praise the Lord for that. Romans 15, we're going to start in verse 5 through 7, but we're going to broaden it all the way back to verse 1 and up through verse 12. So, But we'll just kind of start with the, the meat of this passage that we're going to focus on as we begin this new series, this new one another series uh, that we're going to go through just to start the year as a body to make sure that we're unified. In fact, that's what today we'll be studying, embracing unity together. Uh, this will be an eight-part series as we look at these famous one another passages that are all through Scripture. In fact, today we're going to look at four different one another's, but we're going to just focus on the, the one of embracing one another or being united together as a church. What is it that we're uniting around? Right? Initially, we would probably say, well, we, we unite around doctrine. And of course, we have to be in agreement on core doctrine, but that's not the unity that's being addressed here. So we're going to look at several of these passages that grasp the, the fuller scope of what unity means. Uni unity is not giving in to people. It's not capitulating our values or having no clear direction. In fact, in order to gain Christ-like unity, it's the opposite of those things. So the, several passages are very clear on this, and, and uh, Romans, I think, 15 verses 5 through 7 is the clearest. So would you read it with me? We'll start in verse 5, go to verse 7, and then we'll backtrack a little bit here in a moment. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may be that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. I almost went on. We'll stop. We're going to go on. Don't worry. All right. So I, I want you just to see right at the bat what it is that we're united about or around. There's this desire of God for us to be united as a body. We are one body. He expects us as church members, as believers, he expects us to be united, to embrace or receive one another. And he expects us to do that around one singular thing. One thing unites us above all else. And, and he addresses that. But notice right away, he's addressing this command to be reunite, uh, united or uh, to be like-minded toward one another, but it's based upon who he is. He, he calls himself here, Paul's writing this, he's addressing the Roman church, the Roman believers, mostly Jews, but living in a Gentile society. And so very quickly, the Roman church moves from being uh, very much uh, uh, Jewish in its start to very much Gentile in its population. It didn't take much time. And, and Paul is addressing these issues of unity, which we can imagine when there's two cultures, 
it is easy for those cultures to clash. And the truth is, it's not about either the Jewish culture or the Roman culture or Greek culture. It's about Christ. And so he starts with uh, this command of God, this identification of God. He is a God of patience and comfort. So the God who is patient and the God who is bringing comfort is the one who's imploring us to be united, to be one another, to be like-minded. And so he says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. And it's according to Jesus Christ. So he displays, Christ displays, God displays patience and comfort. He's the source of these things. And therefore, if he's the source of them, he can ask that we also be patient and comforting to one another because he promises to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. And patience here is this patient endurance or the ability to persist. Usually, then, that means for us, persist in something that's difficult. It's not, it's not hard to persist in something that's easy, right? It just it happens. We enjoy it. It's why we, we tend to, to gravitate towards the things that we are good at because they're easy and we enjoy them. But he's telling us here to persist also in the things that we're not necessarily naturally good at or the things that we don't naturally enjoy. And then he's also the source of comfort or encouragement. In fact, both of these are linked back to verse 4. If you'd read verse 4 with me. For whatever, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and hope grant you to be like-minded. And so it's things that were written of old, things from the Old Testament is what he's referring to, the commands of God that were given to the Jews, but they're meant to be given, they were given to the Jews, but for the whole world to share, for the whole world to embrace, for the whole world to understand. Sad point is that many times the Jews did not share them with the world. And so here he's telling us the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The same God who gave us all these promises and these commands in the Old Testament was a God of patience and a God of comfort. And he's still that same God of patience and comfort. And the things that he taught you back then are the same things that he's teaching you now. He was the source then. He is the source now of your patience and your comfort. And so he tells us to be like-minded. It, it literally means to exercise the mind. We would, we would say, we can use other phrases like think, or think on these things, or dwell on these truths. That's what he's telling us, to be of the same mind. Think about the same things of God. And God is the source here. God is the objective. We're going to see that very clearly here in a moment. So it's not that we, we think the same things. It's not that we're in complete agreement about every preference or that we're in, in complete agreement even about every doctrine. Now, of course, core doctrines we have to be in agreement on, and we'll, we'll get to that. But, but the, the preferential things, we don't have to be in agreement about those. It doesn't matter. And we're, I'm not even talking necessarily about worship. I'm just talking about in life. So, so there's all kinds of, I, I hate the term, but it's gray, gray areas. I hate the term because I'm, everything's black and white. Right? Everything's black and white. This is my black 
and my white might be a little bit different from your black and white, and we call those areas gray. All right. So however you want to, semantics, however you want to play the game. Either everything is either right for you or wrong for you. It's either right or wrong. Okay. But, but there's, some, there's some, uh, some liberty, right? Liberty here that we can use. And, and, and God is, these are the areas that God is telling us here to have patience and comfort for one another in. In these areas of liberty where we might not agree about the color of the carpet in the church. Who cares, right? Seriously, who cares about that? But we all care. Am I wrong? Listen, my last church had pink carpet, pink, my daughter even brought this up today, pink uh, wallpaper, pink furniture. You know why? Because the pastor's wife loves pink. Uh, don't worry, my wife does not like pink. And my wife does not care to do any decorating around here. All right, but we all have an opinion. That's the point. We all have an opinion. You have an opinion. You have an opinion about how how my PowerPoint looks today, and this silly crease that goes right up through the middle, okay? I got an opinion too, but I don't care that much, so I left it. All right, we have an opinion about, about how the words were up on the screen today. And some of us liked it, some of us didn't, some of us it moved too quickly, some of us it moved too slowly, right? Blair could have gone a little faster in my opinion. Actually, that was, that was, I did notice. We picked the seat up today. Thank you. I like it. My parents watched last week when I, when I led the music, and they said, whoa, okay. Were you tired? You looked like you were going to take off. You were leading music so quickly. Maybe you're last week, you're sitting there, and you're like, man, Pastor, first of all, he, he could have taken a couple steps away from the microphone. Okay. These are all the things we all have opinions about. But frankly, our opinions don't matter in this regard. They're just preferences. Christ is what matters. That's the point he's driving to. We're to be in harmony. Now, I just listed a whole bunch of things about being at church together as a body. But there's a whole lot of things outside of the building when we disassemble as a church, and it's the same thing out there. Notice the most important point. This is a very important point. This challenge is not wrapped, as I said a moment ago, it's not wrapped around key doctrine or a set of doctrines. The call is to be united around interacting with grace and spiritual maturity towards one another. In fact, the setting is we disagree. Go back to verse 1. We then, who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Or the King James says the infirmities. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, that's building him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and hope grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Notice, according to Jesus Christ, that you may may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the way back at verse 1, we have a setting here that's really important. And the setting is disagreement. 
Verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. The scruples means their doubts or their hesitations. King James, as I said, uh, says infirmities or weaknesses. And the reason it says that is Acts chapter 14, verse 8, uses the exact same word of the, the word scruples here or infirmities. It uses that exact same word when it's describing an impotent man. A man who is unable to care himself, carry himself, un- unable to bear himself up. And so what does he need? He needs other people to come alongside of him and help him, move him, literally to lift him up and move him from one area to another because he is weak. Now that's a physical setting, but here in, in Romans 15, it's a spiritual setting. So it means the spiritually strong are to take the spiritually weak and help move them up. And there's no way to do that unless we unite together. If Pastor Perry is weak, I can't sit here and say, Pastor Perry, get up. Just get up. Get up. I wish you'd just get up. Get up. That doesn't help him. But if I come over and I grab his arm and I help him up, then I have united with him with one goal in mind, and that's to help him move. That's the setting of Romans 15, but it's spiritual, not physical. So it means those who are able, spiritually, who are strong, instead of saying, well, I just wish he'd get up, get up, come on, this is pathetic. You're 30, however many years old, five, six, yes, (laughs) right? You should be able to get up by now, just get up. And that's, but that's what we do sometimes with Christians, right? And, and I'm going to be honest, I'm guilty of this too because I get frustrated because I say, oh, this person's been saved longer than I've been saved. They should know this by now. They should have had victory over this because I have victory in, over this, this area. They should have victory. And I, I wish they'd just get up and do it. But that's not the behavior of Christ from verse 5, 6, and 7. Christ goes, not just physically here, right? This is very much spiritual. Christ is spiritually strong. We know that. He's God. But he moves to the spiritually weak. And instead of criticizing them or disagreeing with them over their spiritual weakness, he moves them. He comes alongside of them and makes them stronger. And that's what you and I are called to do as a church. You are called to move to those who are weak. Instead of telling them or commanding them or criticizing them, you are to help them move along. But you have to do that by being like-minded, by joining with them, by embracing them. And so we're to do this towards one another. In fact, verse 5, back to verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. This is in a futuristic sense. This is a future goal. This isn't, hey, I I don't need to know about the last time you helped someone. Uh, Don't talk to me, right? I'm not me saying this, but God, it doesn't, it's, it's not any value if you just keep referencing to that one time in your life where you helped someone spiritually. The past is the past. What are you doing now? How are you helping those who are weak right now? So there's this future component, this active indicative component. You are to go and find people who are weak and strengthen them, help them up, unite with them, embrace them, and and bring them up. But notice 
it's according to Jesus Christ. This is really important. There's a purpose that he's driving to. In verse 5, he begins to hint at that. He says at the end that you'll be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our example. He was always trying to bring people to unity with God. Everything he did, everywhere he walked on the earth, whether that be he literally physically bent down to help someone who was weak and carry them up, or whether that be he pointed his finger at the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and said, you're behaving like hypocrites, and that's not helpful. Right? Sometimes it is a word of reprimand. But Jesus always spoke, and he always acted with one goal in mind, to move people closer to God. And in doing that, he accepted reproaches. People criticized him for it. But he didn't care because his goal did not change. He was mistreated for it. People misunderstood and leveled accusations against him. They hated him. They despised him. They rejected him. He spent six weeks talking about the suffering of Christ and how he, in servanthood, made himself humble. And what was his focus? Unity with God. So the verse, verse 5, starts and ends with God. He's the focal point. Good good question to ask ourselves. I'm not even going to answer right now, but why must God be the starting point of our unity? Why is this prayer by Paul, it's kind of a prayer here for the people, why is it even being spoken? Well, we find the purpose in the very next verse, and it's clear. Verse 6 says that you, so here we go, that you, here's the purpose, that you may with one mind and one mouth Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the goal? To glorify God. It doesn't matter if the carpet's pink. It doesn't matter if, if you like the words on the screen or you didn't like the words. It doesn't matter if you like the person who's leading the music or not leading the music. It's not about them. It's not about us. It's about God. It's to glorify God. So the idea is that we, as we worship together, we are united and able to keep on glorifying God. Nothing stops us from this unifying purpose. And it's kind of twofold here. With one mind, that's inner glorification. That's the things that you think. And you're responsible for every single thought you have. Now listen, that is really sobering. And actually, I, I learned this year that, no, last year, huh? I learned last year that that's different. The Jews don't think that you're responsible. It's not a sin to think bad things. I, I was astounded by that when I learned that. Jewish people do not think that it's wrong to, to hate someone in your head or your heart or to lust in your head or your heart. But Christ makes that really clear in the New Testament when he says anyone who hates his brother without a cause hates him in his heart, he has committed murder. Anyone who looks at a woman and lusts after her, he has committed adultery in his heart already. So Christ makes things really clear. You are responsible for every thought that you have in your mind. And every thought that you have, the goal 
The goal is really high. Everything that you think to glorify God. Now go ahead and meet that goal. But it's impossible. One day, when Christ completes everything in me, and he eradicates and removes my sin nature, in heaven, I'll be able to do that. And so will you. But you know what? If that's my mark and I'm aiming for it now, and I miss it a little bit once in a while, still a good goal. Because if I'm not aiming at that mark, who knows what sin I'm hitting. And so every thought that we have, we're commanded to bring it into captivity. We're, we're commanded to think about things that are lovely and pure and holy. We're commanded to think like Christ. And so we are to glorify God in our mind. That's inner glorification. And then with our mouth, it results in outer glorification. Of course, we know that Christ tells us that what comes out of a man, out of his heart, is what corrupts him, not the, the things that go in. And so, frankly, some of us need to be a little more, more careful about letting the thoughts escape. Right? That's what he's saying here. The things that we think and the things that we say both should glorify God. We should take care. So that when I see someone who's weak and infirmed, I move to them thinking thoughts that are honoring to God and saying things that are honoring to God so that that person is, is moved in a good way towards Christ. That I come and I bear their infirmities with them. I embrace them and I help them spiritually move closer to Christ. That's the goal. But we must be like-minded. We must exercise our minds. We must set our affections on helping others for the glory of Christ. I must do nothing that hinders you from glorifying God. I must examine myself carefully to make sure that the things that I say, the things that I think, the things that I do are honoring to Christ and not offensive to you. So if your favorite color is pink, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm still not putting pink wallpaper up. You have to be like-minded. Because unity, our goal, is not around pet doctrines or small details or preferences. It's around glorifying God. And listen, if that's your goal, and that's my goal, and I'm helping you work towards that goal, and you're helping me work towards that goal, who gets the honor? God gets the honor. And it's easy. It's easy. But if instead we look at ourselves and we say, I think this and I want this, and, and we say that, we're dividing our body. We're not uniting. And so we have to make sure that our goal is Christ. Now let's look at the way of gaining this unity. Okay, So we have the purpose. It's, it's set. It's the, the foundation is Jesus Christ himself. The purpose is to unify and give God the glory. How do we do that then? Verse 7 begins to, to unpack that. And by the way, the whole series is about that, that very thing. How do we do it practically? 
Well, we start by receiving one another. Verse 7, therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And so there we have it again. Christ was the example. You receive people the same way Christ received you. Let me ask you, how did Christ receive you? You were broken, tired, wicked, heading your own way, loving yourself. All the most wicked things. You thought wicked things, you said wicked things, you did wicked things. And Christ came to you. And Christ gave you love. Forgiveness. Christ embraced you, picked you up, and moved you closer to God. That's the way we're to receive one another. The same way. In fact, this word, receive one another, I really like the Greek word. I know it doesn't matter to you. It's proslambano. I don't, it just sounds funny to me. It sounds like a, like a sumo wrestler or something. Proslambano. Uh, it, it, it means to receive to oneself for friendship or hospitality. I don't know why I think that. I just picture this big old sumo wrestler coming and just picking you up, giving you a bear hug, and lifting you up off the ground. That's pro slambano. That's to receive, fully embrace one another for friendship, not to slam them on the ground. All right. So, so that's what he's doing. It means I take you and I ask you to join with me, to come. We're together now. It's a command to receive each other. To receive means to take to, to oneself, to call someone their friend. To receive is to cross all boundaries here. All ethnic boundaries, all class, all race, all language, all culture. None of that matters. Why does none of that matter? Because the goal is Christ. The goal is to honor and glorify God. And I, I've said this many times. This is why you can go to another country. I've been to many different countries throughout the world and, and worshiped with Christians, and I don't know what they're saying sometimes as they're, as they're singing, but, but there is this bond instantly because we all have the same goal. We're all looking to Christ. It's wonderful. Probably the greatest example we experienced is my wife and I experienced this in China with the underground church. All serious Christians, right? There aren't, there aren't fake Christians there unless they were sent by the government. Uh, you know, they embraced us with, I've, I've never felt from a, a culture and a people so different from me, I've never felt such uh, love and care. It was wonderful. And we should feel that all the time. But it's, it's difficult because Satan wants us divided. Everything he does, everything, his, his goal for our church, divide, divide, divide. That's what he wants all the time. That's what he wants in, in, in our society. That's what he wants in the world. Divide the world. Divide them up into groups. Which group do you fit in? Which group do you identify with? Group here, group here, group here. He doesn't want us united. He doesn't want us all looking to the same goal of glorifying God together. And so we're to receive each other with his full embrace. And of course, the example that he gave already is Jesus Christ. There's really, something really interesting happens here in verse 8 as he begins to continue to expound on this. He references now different groups. Now again, this is written to the Roman church. So Paul's writing this to the Roman church that started with Jews. But it lives in a, in a pagan Gentile society. And so God expects that as those Jews who've embraced Christ 
receive one another, it will become less a Jewish congregation and more a Gentile congregation. And so Paul's addressing that. What's the example of Christ? Well, he receives Jews. Verse 8 says this. Just verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. The fathers means the Old Testament saints, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, those writers of Scripture, those leaders of the past, the Jewish nation, that's who the circumcision is here, the Jewish nation who had the truth given to them by God, what did Jesus do? He received them. In fact, he became a slave to the law. He kept the law perfectly. Now listen, he didn't keep the rabbinical rules, but he kept the Old Testament law. And he kept it in its perfection. So that when they accuse Jesus and his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and eating it, he's accused of breaking the law. But not the Old Testament law, the rabbinical rules. In fact, he perfectly kept the Old Testament law by picking that grain. It was fully acceptable within the law of God, the law of Moses, to take the grain and, and, and pull it with your hands and eat it. The Jews, the rabbinical leaders, said that's work. He worked by pulling that grain off, off the, the stalks. They twisted the law, but Jesus kept it perfectly. He healed on the Sabbath. Was that a violation of the Sabbath? He very rightly said the Sabbath is not for God, but for man. One of the foundational things that God creates. On the seventh day, God gave rest to man because man needed it a day to stop what they're doing and focus entirely on on the lord like that's that's a little bit difficult for us because often we get the weekend off sunday isn't that special but to the jews a slave people who had just left egypt when the ten commandments are given to have a day of rest a day where you aren't forced to, to make mud and brick, a day when you, when you can just stop and receive rest and restoration from the Lord, that's a good thing. And what does Jesus do? He heals someone on the, on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and the Jews get so angry about it, and yet he perfectly kept the Sabbath. He gave life, help on the Sabbath, which is exactly what God intended. And so how does Jesus receive the Jews? He embraces all the Old Testament law in its perfection in order that he might embrace the Jews. He did the same thing with the Gentiles. He received the Gentiles. Verse 9. In fact, verse 9 to 12 is very unusual. Verse uh, 8 we read, verse 9 says, "And, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Listen, this isn't a mystery. It's not that all of a sudden at the end of the, and I've heard this taught before, by the way, at the end of the Old Testament, there weren't enough Jews that had believed on, on God. So God sent his son to the Gentiles so that then they, he could build a special people because the Jews had kind of rejected him. And so he replaced them with the church whole theology built off of that. 
strong. All through the Old Testament, God says he loves the Gentile. Welcome the stranger. Welcome the sojourner. Embrace them into the people. In fact, he makes the statement here, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Where is it written? Well, he reads here from Psalm 1849. And it says, verse 9, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a quotation from Psalm 18, verse 49. If you can advance that slide, let's read it uh, in the Old Testament from Psalm 18, 49. Therefore I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen and sing praise unto thy name. Did you notice it? I emphasized it. You should have noticed it. The word heathen is in Psalm 18, but what does Jesus say? What does God say here? For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So he changes the word heathen and uses the word Gentile in its place. In verse 10, And again he says, and this is quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is from Deuteronomy 32, 43 that says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servant and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. And he does it in reference to the Gentiles. Verse 11, he quotes, Psalm 117, verse 1. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you people, or give him great praise. Let all peoples praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you people. So he gives him praise here. Again, changing the word nations to the word Gentiles. Why? Why is he changing this over and over again? He does it again. In fact, the next verse, yeah, verse 12, quotes Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a, a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting shall be glorious. He changes the word, uh, or he uses the word Gentiles. Four times he does this to emphasize that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are exactly the same. And he loves the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, the heathens of the world, the Gentiles of the world. So this church in Rome that primarily started with Jews and is now trending more Gentile must embrace one another. It's not about being Jew or Gentile. It's about being united in Christ. And so his reception of all people is for their spiritual benefit. Salvation and edification. I'm going to ask you to, if you're still in Romans, you should be, go to Romans chapter 12. We're not going to spend hardly any time on these because we're going we're to look at each one individually at a later time. I just want you to see these one another's, what he's driving at, this unity to receive one another, to embrace one another. He, he says in chapter 12, verse 10, 
be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the necessity or the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And so he, he gives us a couple other one another's here. First is to be kindly affectionate to one another, back in verse 10. This is uh, tender. Right? We usually use the word affection in, in, in a familial relationship, a husband and wife or uh, parents and their children. But he means it here in a broader sense. doesn't mean you have to be hugging everyone, all right? Uh, it just means to be affectionate, to show care and concern and love for other people above yourself. A tenderness towards each other. In fact, the, the word love in this verse is phileo, uh, which we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love that doesn't do it, right? right? Th that's this, this love, brotherly love, right? Friends, people who care about each other. And it's combined here, this, these two types of affection and love for one another. Love like a family and love like strong friends or brotherly love. Brotherly doesn't mean two brothers there. It means two companions. With brotherly love, we look out for each other and we honor one another. That's the kind affection that we're to show. And we're going to look at that one, I think, next week. He also says to prefer one another. Same verse. Literally, it means to lead the way for others, to lead the way. But it's for their benefit. That's the point. It's not for your benefit. It's not, hey, follow me. I told you, like, this is how I used to lead my brothers. <laughs> I grab them. I'm like, you're following me, right? That's not the point. The point is lead other people for their benefit. You need help. I come, I embrace you, I pick you up, and I move you to where you need to go, not to where I want to take you, where you need to go. That's preferring one another. And then he says all the way down in verse 16, I love Romans 12. It's a wonderful passage. It's just, it, it's all these characteristics of what a strong Christian should be. And then, but then all the way down in verse 16, we get those, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice, with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And then verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Now look at the next thing. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Listen, if, if I were to ask you to put those, those two things listed there, okay, set your mind on high things, so think about the right things. And then also, do not be wise in your own opinion. What do those both sound like? Well, to me, they both sound like chapter 15, what we read earlier. Be of one mind and be of one voice. The things that you think and the things that you say both matter. And may God and the glory of God be the object, the purpose, the goal that you're moving towards in both of those things. To think humbly together. 
The Bible uses the word sometimes condescend, to be carried away together with humble men. Teaching, literally, do not have the habit of becoming wise in your own conceit. Not self-reliant, self-absorbed, but teachable. Always learning and trusting in God. And in doing that, we are to strive towards unity. Unity with God, which necessitates that we bend to each other. In closing, would you turn with me to Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor Perry read four of these verses. It's on the screen as well to emphasize, but I want you to see it. Read along with me. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See verse 3, though? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How united is God? Well, the verse tells us, right? One, we're to be one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There's unity in God. And the closer we get to Him, the more we should be united together. And it happens when we endeavor to keep unity, when we embrace one another. Not because we're in complete agreement, not because we all love the same things, but because we love the same Lord. And the goal is to give Him glory in everything that we think and the things that we say. So what are some ways that we as a church can be more effective in setting our minds on spiritual unity? We can find many examples of churches that perform church according to their own personal preferences. And the temptation actually is for you or I to go and look for a church that meets our preferences. According to Scripture, we could be looking for a church that seeks to glorify God. That's the goal. And so how can we guard as a church against the elevation of our preferences and the dangers of division rather than unity? How can we guard in our own life, in your own heart, in your own interactions with one another, how can you guard those things so that God gets the glory? Let none of us steal his glory from him in a desire to get our way. That's not the church. Let us move to one another, help embrace one another so that we can move together closer to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we want, we need to embrace these truths. It is so hard in a world that bombards us with commands to be ourselves, 
right, where we watch videos and, and, and receive entertainment about people who pursue their own goals, their own things. Lord, I pray that we would be a body, a corporate body, who as a whole is endeavoring to pursue you and you alone. And, and sometimes that might look different in the application of, of, of things that we do, but Lord, may it always be to think correct things about you and say correct things about you. And may we put ourselves aside. Lord, help us to follow your command to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then to love our neighbor, to find our fellow believers who are struggling and embrace them and help them move closer to you. And in doing that, we'll find that we, Lord, are more like you. And I pray you'd help us to get this done effectively as a body, but also individually. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. May you get the glory. Help us to identify clearly the areas that we are not faithful. The areas that we just, we want to harbor our own ideas, our own preferences. And we're unbending, rude, obnoxious. Lord, help us springs of water, life-giving water to one another that would build each other up, encourage one another. We do it by embracing each other. Lord, we may you get all the honor and all the glory.